back to the Foreign Desk. I'm Lisa Daftari. Today, we will talk about the Middle East. What else? We always talk about the Middle East, or else it seems that way, right? Uh, we will talk about the future of the Middle East. And I have been wanting to have this guest on for a very long time. I think he is probably one of the most important um, experts and voices on the Middle East and the future of the Middle East right now, and that is the Honorable Jason Greenblatt. Uh, he's a diplomat, a lawyer, a media a commentator. He's the former Trump administration special envoy to Israel and Arab world, and most recently has been named senior director for Arab-Israeli diplomacy, uh, sorry, for, at, for, at the director for Arab-Israeli diplomacy. Uh, he was a senior member of the White House team that brokered the historic Abraham Accords in 2020 that led to normalization between Israel and the UAE, Bahrain, and Morocco. And of course, he is the author of the widely acclaimed book, In the Path of Abraham, uh, which outlines his time at the White House and the Trump administration's work with Israel and the broader Middle East and continuing on the path of creating what he calls a Middle East 2.0 by building economic bridges between Israel and its Arab neighbors. Thank you so much for joining us, Jason. And I really, I want to cut to the Middle East 2.0. What is this that you envisioned? What does it look like? Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. It's always great to talk to you. The Middle East 2.0 is actually continuing to happen. We see so much exciting, so many exciting events and so many exciting business opportunities and things happening in the Middle East. And in many cases, those include Israel. Of course, it includes Israel in the countries that have signed the Abraham Accords. But I would say that to some degree, very quietly, steadily, behind the scenes, it includes Israel, Israeli companies, Israelis, starting to make inroads in countries that have not yet signed the Abraham Accords. And I definitely want to get to the future of what that looks like, you know, what countries will sign on, I mean, how we can get them there. But I want to take a step back for, for those who are joining us and, um, perhaps were duped by the, the mainstream media. And I say that because, you know, as, as somebody who is both a commentator and, and a journalist wearing both hats, um, I felt like the, the media really sold this, this the Abraham Accords short. I mean, for, for, for a lot of people, they didn't grasp the wow factor. And for those of us who've been covering this region for such a long time, it was, it was the mir a miracle of miracles um, to see this unbelievable breakthrough. But not only that, there are legitimate receipts to show how successful the Abraham Accords have been. Um, not just a, a, a dead piece of paper with some signatures on it, but actually has come to life. Um, you know, what, tell us more about how you even thought about brokering a deal like this. Obviously, you know, the first thing people think of, which has been the, 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 the perpetuated myth throughout, since biblical times, I should say, is that if there should be peace in the Middle East, it has to be between the Palestinians and the Israelis. I mean, how did you come up with this idea of jumping over that hurdle, getting to these Arab nations? Did you think they were going to join? I mean, how did you just walk us through your thought process? Sure. Long, long question, but it was a very long process, right? Initially, there were some people who said, ignore the Palestinians, go right to the Arabs, they're ready, make peace with the Arabs, then you'll make peace with the Palestinians. And look, there was some, some degree of truth to that. But we felt that uh, we had the opportunity to try to forge peace between Israel and the Palestinians. Of course, no peace between Israel and the Palestinians would be complete without actually forging peace between Israel and the countries that it's conceivable to have peace with. It's not conceivable. It wasn't conceivable then, and it remains so today, to have peace between Israel and Syria, Israel and probably Lebanon, Israel and Yemen. 
but there were certainly other Arab countries, those that signed, and you know, such as the UAE, such as Morocco, such as Bahrain, but even potentially Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and some others. Um, it would make no sense for Israel to make all the tough compromises necessary to make peace between Israel and the Palestinians without also getting some, hopefully many of those countries. But at the same time, week by week, we realized that the Palestinian leadership was not serious about making peace with Israel. We don't even have to talk about Hamas that rules Gaza and makes 2 million Palestinians suffer. Uh, they have no interest in making peace with Israel. They aim still to destroy the state of Israel, the Jewish state of Israel. But even in the West Bank and Ramallah, what I call Judea Samaria, um, instead of the West Bank, and what shouldn't ever be called occupied Palestinian territory, because that's a false label. It's historically inaccurate. It's not true. Uh, President Abbas wasn't ready to make peace. They condemned President Trump's peace plan before it even came out. So we realized that you can separate the Palestinian issue from the rest of the Arab countries. And eventually, some of the Arab countries were courageous enough to forge a peace agreement with Israel. It's incorrect to just call it you know, a normalization agreement. It's true that's what it is. But for people, you, would, you, know, you spoke about the media, right? For people in the media who downplayed it and said, oh, it's really nothing. These countries were never at war with Israel. They have no clue what this region is like. They have no clue what it means to be an Israeli who can never travel to these countries, who can't have diplomatic relations out in the open, who can't do business in these regions, mm -hmm. these countries. So it really was a full-blown peace agreement. Wow. In some cases, I think they do know the scope and, and, and how important this is, but choose not to acknowledge it because it was brokered under the Trump administration. You know, people like yeah, Nancy Pelosi who called it an, an, a maskless event on the White House lawn. Um, it was a wonderful event. I had the privilege of, of being there and, and watching it up front um, and, and really understanding what a historic day it was. Now, since then, uh, we're about almost three years in, September will make it three years. You've traveled quite a bit to these areas um, and you are visibly an observant Jew. Um, do you feel comfortable? Do you feel like it has trickled down to man on the street or are these just business dealings between governments? No, I definitely feel comfortable. In fact, I started to wear my kippah there. Uh, I think the first time I wore it was at the World Cup itself in Qatar. Um, I, maybe I should rewind the clock back. I started to wear it in the UAE uh, way before that. Really, the minute the Abraham Accords was signed, I started to wear my kippah in the UAE. And I, feel extreme, I felt extremely warm and welcome there. But today, it's like not even a question. It's so... Um, conducive to being a, a Jew, an observant Jew, an Israel supporter in the United Arab Emirates, in Bahrain as well. But I even started to wear it, as I said, in Qatar. I started to wear it in Saudi Arabia as well. And look, there, there are people on the street that look at you a little bit differently. I think they're a bit confused. Many of them perhaps have never seen a Jew before, or if they have, maybe they've seen it on certain television stations in the Arab world who cover Israel and Judaism negatively. Mm -hmm. But I faced no hostility whatsoever. I did get many, many friendly overtures from people in that region, including in Qatar and Saudi Arabia, who are curious. And they welcome me and they say they're glad to see me. My family was with me uh, one of those times. And as an example, my son and I were in the mall in Saudi Arabia in Riyadh with our keep on. A man came up to us and greeted us and said, I'm so happy to hear to see you here. These are the kind of things I generally experience.
That's wonderful. Um, I, I mean, that's not something we we envision. Even you know, uh, somebody who's just covering the region, I would I would imagine that they're still going to take. It's going to take some time, right? For well, for, and that's normal and acceptable to each other. Sure. Um, I actually I, I want to speak about those receipts. I mean, how would you say uh, the Abraham Accords have um, been impactful, and and how has that changed now under the Biden administration? Has it changed? Uh, I would say they've gone through a bit of a roller coaster. For the first year or so, they wouldn't use the word Abraham Accords, the mm -hmm. name Abraham Accords. And I, I'm sure that's because they didn't want to give Donald Trump credit for what he was able to achieve. Right. There's an amazing video that I always encourage people to listen to me to look up on YouTube of the former State Department spokesperson, Ned Price. He's at a press conference and one of the journalists, I forget who, kept saying, why won't you use the name Abraham mm -hmm. Accords? And you see Ned Price like, you know, weaving and hemming and hawing and saying, well, I'm calling them what they are. They're normalization agreements. And finally he gave up. And uh, I give a lot of credit to that journalist because he got Ned Price to finally use the word Abraham Accords. Around the time of our disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan is when I would say the Biden administration publicly embraced the Abraham Accords and committed to trying to further the Abraham Accords. But saying that, sort of paying lip service to it saying they want to embrace it, has to go hand in hand with respecting right. the region, with respecting, for example, Saudi Arabia. They distanced us from Saudi Arabia, and that's putting it very mildly. I would say they dramatically alienated Saudi Arabia. You can't make progress on the Abraham Accords if you're not willing to respect yes. and warmly embrace Saudi Arabia as they should be as a friend and an ally. Right. And and uh, speaking of, of which, when Donald Trump was leaving office, and he mentioned that there were a, a couple of states that are, are or countries that are in um, in queue to become signatory to the accords. And then we didn't hear about anything. Obviously, the Biden administration, as you uh, pointed out, less than enthusiastic to support the Abraham Accords. But I mean, what, why would this not be a part of their policy? Why did they stop? I mean, can you tell us who those countries were and if there are any talks maybe unilaterally between Israel to strike their own deals and leave the United States out of it? So I can't specifically say who the countries were, but there were several. And why did it happen? Because for political reasons, President Biden decided to alienate Saudi Arabia. Um, he has a certain portion of his base is anti-Saudi Arabia, anti-oil anti the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, known as MBS. So he felt that he could bully Saudi Arabia into uh, submission under the U.S. as if they were some vassal state, which, by the way, he treats Israel that way, too. He's, he has treated Israel that way. He's right. treated some of the Arab countries that way. The Arab countries aren't stupid. They're saying to themselves, if you're going to stand with us when we have terror attacks against us, if you're going to be our friend and ally, we'll talk to you. But if you're going to call us, in this case, Saudi Arabia, if you're going to say that we're a pariah, right. if you're going to do all sorts of things against us, we have other options. We have other places to go. So don't come talking about the Abraham Accords if you don't respect us. By I the mean, way, he's alienated other countries, too, the United Arab Emirates. Right. He's not been a strong friend to the United Arab Emirates. And they deserve a lot more support from the United States than they're actually getting. You know, I, I want to stay on, on Saudi Arabia for a moment. Obviously, many of us were waiting, right? It seemed like the next logical step in the Abraham Accords to uh, have the kingmaker, you know, um, sign on to the accords as well. 
and it never happened. Not only that, but recently we found out that China brokered a deal normalizing relations between Iran's regime and Saudi Arabia, something we never thought would happen. If anything, right, we thought Saudi Arabia would sign on with uh, to normalize relations with Israel to curb Iran's regime. And now we see the, the opposite of that happening. So what are the chances, because uh, I know you've been traveling to Saudi Arabia and, and probably attending a lot of important meetings, what are the chances that Saudi Arabia would double dip and now also normalize relations with Israel? So I don't see the two as mutually exclusive. I think the deal that China brokered, and, and China did broker it, by the way. The Biden administration said China just hosted the talks. They brokered it. I mean, reluctantly as I am to give China credit for doing it, and mm -hmm. I'm not sure how it'll play out with respect to Israel. I'm not sure how it plays out with respect to the United States. For Saudi Arabia, that deal makes a lot of sense if the Iranian regime actually adheres to the deal. But I think Saudi Arabia can do both. I think they can do this deal with Iran if the Iranian regime plays by the rules and yet also make progress with Israel. But there are still a lot, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. There are still a lot of hoops that have to be gone through for Saudi Arabia to be willing to make a deal with Israel. One is, as they continuously say, there has to be some progress, some positive progress between the Palestinians and Israel. Uh, what that means remains to be seen. I don't think they're looking for any kind of full-blown peace agreement. I'm not even sure they're looking for land swaps or giving up land in Judea and Samaria, but they want to see progress. The second thing they want is they want the United States to stand by them. That means, okay, they're asking for the ability to have civilian nuclear power. I'm not sure that's the right thing for the U.S. I'm not sure President Biden will agree to that. They're asking for President Biden to hold them in you know, close regard as a very high-level ally. I think President Biden should do that. There's other things on their wish list as well, which they're going to want to see progress on. Without that, I don't think that we do have a chance of seeing Saudi Arabia do that under the administration of President Biden. Now, a lot of people think that the Biden administration is taking a few steps back with all of the funding that went back to the Palestinians after Donald Trump cut them, um, putting so much you know, pride in, 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 in really um, being the one to uh, you know, nurture and, and basically grow the Palestinian forces back to, to, to peace or to stability. Um, you wrote this very, very poignant op-ed recently uh, in Newsweek's Palestinian leader Abbas is no partner for peace with Israel. And it kind of, you know, when you read that, you think, well, we can't turn to Hamas, right? We can't turn to Palestinian Islamic Jihad. How are we to curb uh, the Palestinians, not even curb, but even communicate, right? Very basics. We have a, a message we want to convey for Israel. We have a message we want to convey uh, to the Palestinians who do we go to if Mahmoud Abbas is not the guy? 100% right. But the reason I wrote the op-ed is because it's even worse. Before we figure out who to go to, what we're seeing now is having these Nakba events, This what the Palestinians call the catastrophe of Israel's formation. We're seeing it being held in Congress. We're seeing it being held in the United Nations. When President Abbas spoke at the United Nations at the first ever Nakba event, do you know how much applause he got? He got so much applause. And what was his speech about? Castigating the United States, castigating Great Britain, countries that have given billions of dollars to the Palestinians, using Nazi references, ca casting Israel as a, as a villain, as a foe. These are the kind of things that the public space is talking about. And if we don't push back, we're going to see this go further and further and further. 
he and the Palestinian leadership for decades have been extraordinarily talented at turning lies into truth. And the more they do that, and the more that we don't push back on it, the worse it's going to be. I mean, how much uh, or how damaging are these are these Biden administration policies against Israel and almost in 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 uh, ignorance of of the Abraham Accords? I mean, has it been a setback or has Israel decided to kind of ignore and continue what it needs to do? On a big picture level, I think the Biden administration has been doing okay on Israel, right? There's no Iran deal. There's no new Iran deal, even though they desperately tried to do it. How much they really listen to Israel, I don't know. I don't have the inside baseball on the Biden administration and Israel. <clears throat> but uh, And I'm against the Palestinian, the policies they have with respect to the Palestinians continuously giving them money. Right. But on the smaller level, and these are not small issues, they have very bad policies. So this week you saw the new State Department spokesperson challenging the mm -hmm. what they call the settlement of Chomesh. And I don't want to get into Chomesh itself. I can understand they have certain complaints as to whether or not Chomesh should be established now or reestablished now. But they went back into the old language of saying that it's the so-called settlements that are an obstacle right. to peace. That's nonsense. It's not true. There was no peace before the so-called settlements. Right. Policies like that are very bad for peace. They're very bad for Israel. They're bad for the Palestinians. So on that front, I think they're not doing a good job. I actually have your, your statement here. I was going, I was going to um, mention the tweet from the State Department uh, calling out Israeli settlements as, as, a, a, as an obstacle to peace, but also saying that, that they should just maintain the status quo. Um, and you responded uh, to the tweet, uh, settlements are not an obstacle to peace. There are so many obstacles to peace. Settlements, which are really communities and towns and cities, may anger Palestinians, but they're not the reason there's no peace. Please stop using this language. It drives peace further away. If you want to see one of many examples of real obstacles to peace, take a look at this Palestinian recruitment video designed to recruit lone wolf Palestinian murderers, terrorists to attack Israelis. Warning, it is graphic. I, mean, I, I do um, appreciate the way that you provided um, context and an example uh, and a graphic example. I mean, is the White House not aware of this recruit of the recruitment of the of the violence of the terrorism of Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad of their connection to Iran's regime? Are they not aware? I mean, are we smarter than them? Could this be? So they're aware of it, but they think differently than us, right? First of all, they think that settlements are an obstacle to peace, and the terrorism is terrorism, right? Can't fight it. Some of them, the real malicious ones, actually think it's okay. They think these Palestinians are freedom fighters. Very small group, I think, actually thinks that way. But they would rather focus on things they can control. In their mind, they can control the prime minister of Israel and say, stop with the settlements. But in their mind, they know they can't control the terrorism. So it's an easy focus. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Gaza. So when I was in the White House getting educated by the think tanks, by all my colleagues at the State Department, after, let's say, let's call it a month of education into the space when I first started my job, I learned a lot. And I said to them, well, you know, you've spent all this time educating me about President Abbas and the so-called two-state solution and the so-called settlements and so-called Palestinian refugees. And, you know, you name it, they did it. I said, but what about Gaza? How do we solve this problem, even if we come up with the best peace plan? And President uh, Abbas and then and still now Prime Minister Netanyahu get in a room together and look at the peace idea, the peace plan we propose, and they say, 
okay, this makes sense. What's the solution for Gaza? You know what one of my colleagues said to me? Shh, don't talk about Gaza. Why? Because we can't solve it. Talk about the things that the people want to hear that gives them hope that maybe there's a chance at achieving peace. But I'm a lawyer by training. I don't practice now. My job is to get a deal done in a realistic manner, to expose all the issues and bridge all the gaps and try to get there. If you ignore one of the most obvious holes in trying to achieve a deal, in this case, a peace deal, and you ignore Hamas, a terror regime that vows to destroy Israel and last week shot 1,400, I think more than 1,400 rockets at civilian, uh, at Israeli civilians, by the way, from within Palestinian civilian areas, also harming Palestinians, you're ignoring the very essence of how you can make a peace deal. That's the thinking. The thinking is, put your head in the sand, talk about the nice things and the positive things and the things you could control and ignore the hard issues. Uh, before I get to internal um, rife inside Israel, I want to talk about the role of the media in really um, picking and choosing how they portray the Middle East. Um, you know, when I first started out, I remember being at NBC and then being called up to the, the main president's office and being like, wow, I can't believe they're calling me and I'm an intern. And he goes, tell us about the difference between Shiite and Sunni uh, Islam. We need to know right now. And they had some live broadcasts going on. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, they don't know these basic things. And that's really what kind of started um, planting the seed for, for me to specialize in this area because maybe it was necessary. But now that I've been working uh, in this arena for quite a while, seems like they know better than to than the way that they are reporting. So they don't start the coverage of the 1,400 missiles into Israel until there is a retaliation that maybe injures one Palestinian. And then this real, real disproportionate um, news coverage fueled by social media, influencers who don't understand anything but have millions of followers, then it becomes, you know, um, the, the David and Goliath match, but totally reversed and totally narrated by the media. How did this happen? How do we stop it? How do we get people to see the Middle East and all that you've accomplished as a nonpartisan, bipartisan issue? So I'm going to answer in two ways. Um, I'm going to start with the tweet that you referenced the other day, the one um, where it was probably had about 90,000 views at this point, maybe 200 comments. The vast majority of comments are haters throwing out terms like international law. Jason, you have no idea what you're talking about. And they use this terminology that's just false, but it sticks because it sounds legitimate and they are influencers. So they then actually get more and more people to buy in to false narratives. And over the years, all these things have gained a level of truth, even if they're not true, because we just haven't done a good enough job fighting it. Second example, and I'm not sure if I'm even pronouncing her name correctly, Christiana Amanpour, the CNN journalist who shockingly referred to the terrorist murder of um, the D sisters and their mom as saying that they were caught in a shootout. Now, <laughs> she did uh, just apologize, but let's look at her apology. She apologized because some organizations actually latched onto it, tried to fight back, and I guess it caught her or CNN's attention enough that she decided to apologize. So good for those organizations that put a spotlight on it. We need to do more of that. But now we should put a spotlight on her because what did she say? I, didn't, I shouldn't have said shoot out. I should, have, I should have said shooting. It wasn't a shooting. It was a cold-blooded terrorist murder 
of these women. And the fact that she's unable to acknowledge that and say that, shame on her and shame on CNN for not doing a full-throated apology, calling terrorism what it is. So we need to not only educate the media, but fight the media when they hide the ball from the viewers, because they are part of the source of the problem. Absolutely. Um, I want to turn to what's going on inside uh, Israel and how it's caught the attention of the media, who never says anything, but all of a sudden there are many cameras um, on these protesters protesting Bibi's um, uh, we, we, hold, we did a whole episode on the judicial reforms and what they mean and what Bibi's trying to do. And I, and I encourage many people to go watch it with Eugene Kontorovich. Um, we won't get into the nitty gritty, but it did get President Biden's attention, who chimed in, uh, telling Bibi to knock it off. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Why would they just choose to um, reserve their criticisms for the moments in which it's, it's Bibi's government or it's, you know, the right wing? It's always left and right is my point. I mean, what's going on? So first of all, President Biden should stay out of it. This is an internal Israeli issue. And it's a very, very substantial issue. I get that. And I'm not going to take a position on judicial reform. I haven't, I'm going to watch your episode that, you know, Eugene really knows his stuff. I commend you for having that episode. Anybody who thinks they're against it or for it, for that matter, should study it. Don't protest it unless you really know what you're talking about. Uh, Don't say that Israel's democracy is about to fall. That's probably not true. But President Biden should not tell another country how that country should act. Thank God Israel's a democracy. If you look at those protests, it's rather remarkable. You've had huge numbers of protesters, first initially on the left, now also on the right, all wearing, not all, many people wearing flags. I mean, I think the flag was almost the best thing. Instead of seeing burning cars and all these other things that you saw at about the same time in France when they had their protests, which were pretty wild and pretty... um, a lot of bad behavior in those countries. Most of the media was focused on the volume of protesters for Israel and trying to pretend that Israel's democracy was at risk. Why? Look, Israel gets a lot of attention, very bad attention often, sometimes good. And it's just weaponizing things, weaponizing the media against Israel. Now, from where you sit, how much of what's going on internally in Israel is spilling out onto the into the world stage, mainly the, the, the Middle East and, and Arab states, meaning has what's going on inside Israel demoted Israel or the Abraham Accords or the prospect of moving forward with Israel uh, because of what's going on inside the country? I think it would be foolish for anyone to think that it doesn't have an impact. Uh, there's no question that these countries are watching it, both the signers and the non-signers yet of the Abraham Accords. And some of the people are looking at it different ways. You have some people standing there saying, excellent, Israel's going to fall apart. Mm -hmm. Now, they largely say that because a lot of the media is saying that and they don't know any better because all they know is what they see in the media. Let's leave those people aside. They hate Israel. They're not interested in Israel. Um, Their opinion, in my mind, is irrelevant. Then you have people who are genuinely worried. They think Israel is a beacon, a rock in a democracy. And they're wondering, is it a strong democracy that they've always thought it was. I think largely speaking, especially now since the protests remain peaceful and there was a period of calm and hopefully there'll be a period of compromise, I think their impression today is certainly significantly more positive towards what's happening than it was when the protests initially started and you had this crazy media coverage. 
But I think Israel should be mindful that their reputation is being watched, how they're perceived in the region is being watched. They could definitely damage not even just the Abraham Accords, and perhaps that's a bit too far. I'm not sure it'll damage the Abraham Accords, but they could damage their prowess and their business reputation and so many other things inadvertently if they don't play their cards right. That doesn't mean people shouldn't protest whatever side of the, you know, uh, however they feel about the judicial reform. It's a democracy. Thank God they should go ahead and protest. But be mindful when you make public comments about the protests, how Israel is perceived. Don't say Israel's democracy is at stake if it's actually not at stake. Well, um, for your last question, I mean, I can keep you here forever, but we're running out of time. Last question for you, and I want you to bring out the creativity as you have before and gotten things done. We're seeing a lot of uh, Iran's protests spilling out onto the Middle East, meaning they're finding support among um, people all over the Middle East and all over the world, frankly, but a lot of support inside Israel. Um, we saw you know, visits by Reza Pahlavi to Israel. We were seeing a lot of solidarity on the streets of Israel, calling out to the women of Iran and the, the protesters and supporting their revolution, etc. cetera. Um, as you know, Len Kudrakovsky and um, Victoria Coates, who are friends, I think, of, of both of ours, have talked about a potential Cyrus Accords in the future where the people of Iran, the people of Israel would come together as they have many times before and, and have it. 44 years ago. And so historically speaking, there's a relationship there. How would you, as this visionary of the Middle East 2.0, incorporate a future where Iran, Israel, and all these moderate Arab states could live side by side with peace and prosperity? Well, the first is to recognize there are always going to be bad people, right? Even if the protests succeed in Iran, which uh, unfortunately does not look like they are, though I give all those brave people tremendous credit protesting under such difficult circumstances. They don't really have any form of freedom, and then they get thrown in jail, some cases killed. Um, we need to support them. However we support them, you know, if it's mere lip service, okay, that's not so great, but it's very, very hard to actually support them. I do know some people who are donating all sorts of equipment. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they get it out there. Those are really important efforts. Uh, you mentioned the visit of the son of the Shah. Let's think about this. When President Trump was going to Israel, this was in May of 2017. Our State Department was fighting with the Israeli personnel. It was a person from the embassy in the, this is, you know, before we got our hands on Israel policy. A State Department person or an embassy, a U.S. embassy person shouted at the Israeli police or the Israeli security personnel at the Kotel Plaza, literally right in front of the Western Wall, saying, get out of here. This is not even Israel. Could you imagine that they didn't want President Trump to go to the Western Wall to pray. And they even tried to chase the Israelis out of the Western Wall Plaza, the Kotel Plaza, claiming that it wasn't Israel. Trump administration put a stop to that right away. President Trump went there to pray. Uh, the First Lady went there to pray. His family went there to pray. It was beautiful. It was moving. But there was that difficulty. Now, a couple of weeks ago, you had the son of the Shah going to the Kotel to pray. Look at the contrast between what the State Department wanted with respect to President Trump and thankfully failed, and the son of the Shah. So I do think the concept of the Cyrus Accords is achievable if we're smart about it. But the issue really is, how do we get rid of this evil regime that terrorizes its own people, causes all sorts of trouble throughout the Middle East and beyond? 
that I don't have any real good answers for you, sadly. Oh, I actually was going to follow up saying, what, was there <laughs> any plan uh, under the Trump administration to do something for the people of Iran? Um, or, I mean, what would you do if you were in office now? Two, two part well, question. I think All my questions have been very long and complicated, but it's a complicated issue. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very complicated and very important. Um, I think President Trump was on the right track. I think the sanctions idea was useful. The problem with the idea is that not enough countries, and certainly important countries around the world, were following those sanctions. Right. You had our European so-called friends and allies who were actually looking at ways to go around the sanctions. Mm -hmm. So it's like a, a leaky pipe, right? If the leak just keeps leaking, you're not really fixing the pipe. So his idea was good. It was noble. It was important. It would have helped the people of Iran and the region entirely. But if our friends and allies and even other countries are not supporting it, it just doesn't really work. So that's the problem. We, are, we have to recognize that there are a lot of other countries with a lot of different interests than we have. And if we're not gonna try to engage those allies and explain to them the costs and consequences of not standing with our policy, and we're just gonna look weak as we do now under the current administration, nothing's gonna help the people of Iran. Right. And if you look on social media, a lot of Iranian Americans and expats, and even those inside Iran talk about um, the importance of pressure on their regime, perhaps not knowing that the uh, the campaign against uh, Iran's regime was called the pressure campaign under Trump. Um, and, and it was a very much um, effective for the time. But of course, now we have a very different uh, administration with very different Iran policy. I want to uh, encourage you all to pick up The Path of Abraham. You can order it on Amazon. A wonderful book. I have it. It's actually on my nightstand. Um, it outlines very, very important work in the Middle East and perhaps a, a, a even a better future for the Middle East. Um, you can look up Jason Dreesen, greenblatt.com. Catch him on Twitter, greenblattjd. And listen to the Diplomat podcast. You can grab that on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And thank you so much, Jason, for joining us. This was a wonderful conversation. And good luck to you and safe travels to you. I know you travel all over the world doing this very, very important work. And to the rest of you, if you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, you can go to youtube.com slash Lisa Daftari. And to sign up for our daily top 10 email, go to foreigndesknews.com. See you all next week.